Well, if you're new here, um, or if you haven't been in a while, I've been doing this kind of a series of teachings that I've just personally been calling Lessons from the Land. I haven't really said that before. But, um, but we're going to continue doing that um, for the past, I guess, three weeks. Maybe this is the fourth week. Recapping a little bit, kind of verbally processing uh, our trip from Israel uh, to Israel. About 20 of us went, I guess, almost a month ago now. And uh, there's something that God does in you spiritually when you're in the, uh, in the geography, you know what I mean? And so, um, so some things the Lord would speak there, some things the Lord has been speaking kind of to me and through really to the rest of the team from what I hear since we've been back. And we've just been sharing those things. What I want to share with you tonight, let me just say this. Um, I was actually going to share last week. And then I was preparing and, and getting ready. And I realized there is so much to share on this particular topic that there's no way that I could do it in a week. So I scrapped it last week and taught one of the other things that the Lord had been sharing with me. And so I told Melissa, I think that we should do this, um, to cover this particular thing over three weeks. And so for the next three weeks, we're going to talk about, I'm going to teach tonight, Melissa's going to share next week, and then I'll wrap it up. But for the next three weeks, we're going to talk about the olive press. Okay, so if you're taking notes, you can write that down. We're going to talk about the olive press. And, and before we get started, I want to read one scripture and then give you kind of this whole sermon in one line, in one sentence. So if you would, turn to Isaiah 53. And we'll, we'll get back to there here in a little bit. But Isaiah 53. It's one of my favorite verses. Some of you automatically know exactly uh, what we're talking about when we say Isaiah 53. And then look at verse 5. And I'm just going to read this one verse because it's going to set us up for tonight. Isaiah 53 verse 5 says, But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of uh, the chastening for our well-being fell upon him. Some of your versions may say the punishment that brought us peace was on him. I really like the way um, that the NLT says it. It says that he was beaten so that we could be made whole. I like that. And then it says, um, by his wounds we are healed. Some of your versions say by his stripes or by his scourging. We are healed. And so this is kind of a backdrop scripture for what we're going to talk about really over the next three weeks. And for tonight, I want to give you this whole sermon in one sentence. And it's, it's not anything amazing. It's just total truth. So if you're writing it down, write this down. The life that we are called to has been made possible because of the death of Jesus Christ. Let me say it again. The life that we have been called to has been made possible because of the death of Jesus Christ. And that's almost like the gospel in a sentence, isn't it? Okay? But that sentence is going to be a real big backdrop for tonight. So keep that sentence. If you're writing things down, write it down. And then keep, uh, keep that in sight as we move forward. I said that we're going to talk about the olive press. And we'll get to that. But to talk about the olive press, you have to start by talking about the olive tree. One of the things I noticed right away when we got into the land, the land of Israel, is that there are olive trees Everywhere. How many of you have been to Israel? Some, a lot of you have because you went on this trip. How many of you noticed the olive tree? Sean, did you notice all? They're everywhere. 
Olive trees everywhere. And I'd heard that before, that there are olive trees everywhere. You know, and you say, okay, there's going to be olive trees everywhere. But it's kind of like when you have a friend, if you're from Texas, East Texas, you have a friend that's from up north or they're from somewhere, and you say, well, what's it like where you live? Oh, man, there's pine trees everywhere. You know what I mean? It's the piney woods of Texas. And then they come for a visit, and you tell them that, but then they come for a visit, you pick them up from the airport, and you start driving down I-20 towards Tyler, and the first thing they'll say is, man, look at all the pine trees. It's like, well, I told you there are pine trees everywhere. But it's a kind of the same thing. There's pine trees everywhere here. There's olive trees everywhere in Israel. And if you know anything about olive trees, um, they're very, very important for that culture. They, they have been for a long time. In fact, one of the first plants that you read about, or the first trees, plants, that you read about in Scripture is the olive tree. Because remember when Noah and the ark, the water was subsiding, and he sent that dove out three times, that third time, what was it that the olive, I mean, that the... Can I back up? No. What was it that the dove came back with? An olive branch. And so really even for the, for the we know the whole story of, of the rainbow and the promise and all that. The olive branch, the dove and the olive branch has been a symbol of peace for Israel, but really kind of for the whole world, you know. Um, in a lot of ways you see that all over the place. So the olive tree has been a part of this thing from the very beginning. But a couple of things about the olive tree that I learned while I was over there, because I don't study the olive tree, so I'm hearing stuff I've never heard before. For example, the olive tree is one of the most hardy trees ever. It can endure so much. It can, it can, be, um, it can be cut down like to the, to the bottom of the trunk, and it'll grow back. It'll start growing little shoots, and it'll grow back. In fact, i got some pictures that I'll show you tonight. In fact, my, my PowerPoint tonight is just pictures. Um, is that the first one? If you look there, you see this olive tree, and one of the things you'll see about it too is that it's kind of, depending on how you look at things, it's kind of ugly. You think, man, something's up with that tree. It's messed up. But that's the way the olive tree is. And this is a really old one. And a lot of the olive trees in Israel are super old. It is not uncommon for them to live 400 years old. But listen, I was reading that there are seven trees in the area of Galilee that are um, 3,000 years old. I was reading that there's one in... I'm still trying to verify the factuality of this. Is that a word, factuality? that there's one in Lebanon that dates back to 4,000 B.C. I'm like, you're kidding me. And it's because they're so durable. They can, stand, they can stand the bugs. They can be burnt down. They'll come back. It's a very durable tree. And, and you'll, when you look at the olive tree in Scripture, and you kind of see it all over the place, um, it's no wonder that the olive tree, the olive, the olive branch, the the olive itself, the oil. It's no wonder that the writers would refer back to this because there's so many things about who God is, what he's up to in our lives that re- relate back to the olive tree. I think I have another picture of it, maybe a closer up one. Yeah, you can see that. Um, these pictures right here are taken actually in the Garden of Gethsemane, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But you can see each one is kind of naughty. It's kind of it's contorted and crooked and weird. Each one is totally unique, which that preaches itself. Look at that one on the left. You see that one over there? It's like, what is that? And we're going to talk more about the, the olive tree itself um, the last week. So I won't say too much tonight. Um, but they're old. They can be old. They can be transplanted. One can be huge. It can be dug up. And it can literally be transplanted. I was watching one little video that talked about all the trees in this olive grove, grove were literally transplanted. And they were huge. And they were huge when they were tra- transplanted. 
So that is going to mean more to you two weeks from now, okay? But keep that in your hopper. Is that cool? So the next thing to think about is what is the fruit that comes from these olive trees? By the way, I'll be honest with you. I don't know that I really knew that olives came from trees. <laughs> Just like I didn't know that Cuba was... Anyway. Um, and so even we, we were even uh, walking down the sidewalk one day and we were passing some trees and we were looking at this and it's like, is that, that's an olive tree. But then we were looking, are, are these olives? Is this really where olives come from? But sure enough, we picked one. And we almost wanted to keep it and, and take it home because like, we've never done this before. Olives grow on olive trees, you know? Not under the ground like potatoes, you know? I don't know if I thought that, but anyway. But the olive itself was really important, really all the way from the beginning, but it was, um, it was a food. They would eat it. In fact, every restaurant that we went to, they brought olives out. There were olives everywhere, and they were feeding them to you. It was like the appetizer. I thought, man, there's a lot of olives. That right? makes sense because it's important over there. It's important to the people. But another thing that's important about the olive is the oil that comes from the olive. And you guys know that. You've heard of olive oil. You've heard of extra olive oil. Did you just say that in church? I cannot believe it. Right? Extra virgin olive oil. And we're going to talk a little bit about that too. Olive oil It was an important thing to do. And a couple uh, for them, a couple reasons why is um, the oil, and we're going to talk about how they get it in a minute, but the oil was used in their worship. It was used in the temple. We've talked about the menorah, the lampstand that they would use inside of the temple, inside of the holy place. And that was the oil that they would use in there. They would use the extra virgin olive oil. We'll talk about that in a minute. Only for that, for the, um, for the menorah, and also for anointing, like when they were going to anoint a king or they were going to do some sort of spiritual ceremony. The extra virgin olive oil that they would get was used for that. They would use it for food. They would use it for uh, a healing agent. They would use it for... Um, uh, lamps in the home. They wouldn't use the extra virgin olive oil in the homes, but they would also use it. People in their home would use the oil. Um, and we'll talk about that in a second. Um, they would use it, I think I said, for food. One of the things they would use it for, did I mention medicine? I mentioned medicine. They would use it for soap. Okay? And again, we'll get to that in a minute. But they, it was a very important item. them. Olive trees produced olives, which produced something that was very important, uh, important to their culture. And, uh, and so, um, moving on. Um, I wanted to tell you, this is what impressed me, no pun intended, but this is what impressed me the most. One day we went to a kibbutz. It was a place, it was a community um, where people lived all together. I don't want to get into all that, but it was this place where people lived together in community, and this kibbutz happened to be um, uh, where believers only lived, so it was a very special place. But they had set up these different stations where you could go in, and they had a place like a, um, a model of a synagogue, what a synagogue w- would have looked back there. They had a model of, of the tomb um, that Jesus might have been buried in and what it looked like, how it worked. They had a model of a wine press. They had a model of an olive press. In fact, I'll show you a couple pictures there. Um, uh, you can't see it very well. But... Um, um, and I'll just leave those up there for a second. It also had um, um, a threshing floor. They had modeled a threshing floor of what it was like when they would sift the wheat and all that kind of stuff. It was really, really powerful. And when people ask me, what was your favorite part of Israel? That was one of my favorite things. And you wouldn't think it would, but it was because the guide, in fact, you can go to the next picture. I think he's in this. We'll give him some props. Uh, he's up in the corner. But he was very, 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 very good. And he shared some things with us that some of us had never even heard. So I wanted to share some of that with you about, um, about the pressing 
of the olive to get the oil. The harvest time was in November. They would do this in November. The way that they would harvest, (laughs) even the way they would harvest the olives, they would get a big pole and they would beat the branches. They would they would beat the olives off the tree and they would just fall. Um, they would beat or shake. Sometimes they would say, no, we shake it, but they would do it with a pole or something like that. Um, if they were really, really old trees, which a lot of them were, they would hand pick them so that they didn't damage to make sure that they would keep producing. But those trees are pretty durable, so a lot of times they would just, even the old ones, they would, they would beat them. And um, something that I didn't realize is that even the seeds of an olive had oil in them. Even the seeds. In fact, um, uh, I think I wrote this down. Um, half of the weight of an olive is oil. So if you look at an olive, you think, however this much weigh, weighs, half of it is oil. So there's a lot of oil to be extracted um, out, of, out of these olives. And what they would do, you can see this right here. This is a, a millstone. And this is, um, uh, they would put all of the olives, they would get baskets and they would pour them in. And I don't know if you can see it. Can you go up to the next one? I think you might can see it a little better. The, I mean, before. Yeah, you can see the little, the little pole that goes in there. They would tie a donkey or even people would push this thing around. Um, and while this millstone is going around that, that circular deal, it would crush these grapes. I mean, grapes. These uh, olives. I'm going to be talking about the wine press a couple weeks from now, too. It would crush these olives. And it would just open them up, lay them bare, and it would just keep crushing, keep crushing, keep crushing. And it would turn those olives into like this, um, this liquidy paste, okay? So this vat, this little circular bowl vat thing, would just be filled with this kind of a green, um, pasty liquid. And then what they would do, go to, the, go to the next picture, or two more. No, not that one. Is that one there? Go back one more. Yeah, no, that's right. Man, I'm sorry these, the lighting is bad in here. What they would do, you can actually see it in there if, uh, if you could see a little better. Go to the next one. Yeah, you can't see very well. Um, they would have these little baskets. They called them, um, they called them, oh, what do they call them? Mash, mash, mash pots or something. But they were real, little wicker baskets. And they would take that paste and they would put them in the baskets and fill up those baskets. You guys understand what a wicker basket is? They would put in these baskets and they would take it over to the press. Um, That's it. That's the baskets right there. um, And that's the oil kind of coming out of it. But go back to the press, Randy, if you wouldn't mind. This thing right here on the other end um, of that pole, there's a, I wish you could see it, but they would pile the baskets one on top of the other. And they had what's called a first press a second press, and a third press. And some people would say they would press it up to five times, but Jewish tradition says that we press three times. And I think it's very powerful that it is three, and you'll see why in a second. But they would have, after they crushed it, they would put that paste in these baskets, and they would just pile them on top of each other. And the first press was actually just the natural weight of these baskets upon themselves. Okay, So you can imagine those things filled with this this milky paste thing. And so the natural pressure, you can go to that one, I guess, and show them. We can leave that up for a second. You can see the natural pressure would just kind of, and weight would squeeze that oil out, okay? And while they were doing that, while they were squeezing it, they would also pour water on it at the same time. So um, when the first press, it was just the natural weight, and they would pour water on it. And the water and the oil would flow down into this 
this holding vat thing. And, um, and the water would be, interestingly enough, a little heavier. You guys have ever heard water and oil don't mix? Well, that's kind of the, the deal here. The oil would kind of stay up at the top. And the water would be at the bottom. And they would, that first press would get that, that best oil out of the, um, the wicker baskets, out of the, the press. And it would soak into this deal. And so basically, if you're looking at it, you would see kind of water at the bottom, but oil rising to the top. And so they would get cups or whatever they would get. And they would scoop out that good oil, that first press oil, the best oil, the virgin olive oil. And that oil was the purest, it was the best, and that's the oil, and stay with me, that's the oil that they would use to light the lamp in the holy place, the menorah, the lampstand. And that's the oil that they would use in religious ceremonies, like when they would anoint king. You guys remember when Samuel went to David to anoint him a king when he was a boy? He would have used that kind of oil. And that kind of oil could not be used for anything else. They couldn't sell it. I mean, it was a big deal for that culture. This is the only thing. If you had a wine, a, a oil, a olive press, and you're going to press some oil, you you had to take that to the priesthood. You had to take it to the the Levites and let them use it in the in the temple, in the tabernacle in the older days. And so that's the first press. Now stay with me, okay? So that first press oil was used for light. And it was used for anointing. Okay, stay with me. The second press, what they would do, go back to the, uh, to the stones, Randy. The second press, after the weight, a natural weight had pressed as much as it could, they would, um, they would take these rocks and they would do one at a time or maybe all of the time, whatever was necessary, and they would add weight to that. And so it was like a, a lever system and that the weight of those rocks would crush those baskets. And this was called the second press. And a lot, as you can imagine, a lot of oil would come out of this. Now, it wasn't the best oil because that had already been taken out. But a lot of oil would be taken out of this. This was, this was considered the second press under the weight of the stone. And this, listen to me, there, there's lots of things that they would use it for. But again, the primary thing that they would use it for was for food. They would use it to cook with. Uh, what do we use? What kind of oil? Cisco? <laughs> no. What do we use to do our fried chicken in? I don't know. Anyway, they would use the good stuff. They would cook with it. Obviously, they ate the olives. Um, so they used it for food. They would use it for medicine. Again, uh, medicine. They would also use this for uh, perfumes. This second batch, the second press, the oil from the second press. And they would, um, again, press it as much as they can. And they would get a lot out of it. But there was still more in there. And so they would do a third press. And they would put all the weight that they had and they would press as much as they could to get as much as they could out of those wicker baskets, out of that oil. Okay? Now that, as you can imagine, that third press um, was considered not as valuable. And so what they would use it for, and this is interesting, what they, the main thing they would use it for was soap. They would make soap out of it. Okay, now keep these things in mind. First press, um, light, oil, anointing. Second press, they would use it for food. They would use it for medicine. Third press, they would use it for, and there's a lot of uses. I'm just focusing on these because this is very involved. Third press, they used it primarily for soap. Now, let me just pause and say, if, uh, and let me say one more thing. Go to that last picture. Because I want to I say this 
the, of the basket, the oil coming out. Nope, not that one. Yeah. You can see that picture and the one before it. You can even tell this from this bad lighting. What, what color is that oil? It's kind of a reddish-brown tint, isn't it? Go to the one before that. You can see it a little better there, I think. Eh, not so much. If you want those pictures, I'll email them to you. Just email me, okay? Tony at somatyler.org. But you'll notice that what's coming out of there, oddly enough, interestingly enough, is, is red. It's like a reddish tint, okay? So I'm going to put that on the shelf. We'll bring that up later. Now, real quick, the oil, if you've been around here enough to know, you, you've heard us, I mean, if you've been around here enough, you've heard us say that in Scripture, there are several things, a few things in particular, that are representative of the Holy Spirit. And that is water, uh, wind. You may have heard of some ser- a sermon about the wind of the Spirit or something like that. And then oil. Oil representing the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Um, when we, oftentimes, well, every time, when we he- pray for someone to be healed, we um, have some oil. I don't know where it is right now, but we have a little jar of oil that we'll bring out. And Scripture says, if anyone be sick, Bring them to the elder and let them anoint them with oil. And that symbolic, there's no power necessarily in the oil, but what it's symbolic of in Scripture is the Holy Spirit. Okay, so keep that in mind. Remember what my sermon in sentence was. The life that we are called to live has been made possible through Jesus Christ. One of the things we talk about around here is that life in Jesus Christ is life lived in the Spirit. Not a life of the flesh lived by the Spirit. But we are only able to have that life and walk in the life and power of the Holy Spirit because of what Jesus Christ did. So let's step into that portion of this. Can we do that? In fact, let me read something real quick to you on that note. John 16. It's quite a bit. I wasn't sure if I would read it, but I think I'm going to have, I'm going to have time. Stay with me. How many presses? The section is labeled, The Holy Spirit Promised. Jesus said, But now I'm going to Him who sent me. I'm going away to the Father. And none of you asks me, Where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. They were sad that he was going away. He said, but listen, guys, listen to me carefully. One of the most important things I'm ever going to say, I'm going to say to you now. He says, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, in Greek, that's the paraclete, one who comes alongside. He's talking about what, class? The Holy Spirit. If I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him, the Holy Spirit, to you. And when He comes, when He, the Holy Spirit, when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in Me. And then concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see Me. And uh, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, but I can't bear them now. But when He, the Spirit of truth, that's another way of describing the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the one who comes alongside, the helper, He is going to guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take of Mine and disclose it to you. 
All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and he will disclose it to you. And then I won't read this, but the very next thing Jesus starts talking about is his death. He goes into um, to some considerable detail about his death. He says, a little while longer, uh, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while you will see me. And then he starts talking about the resurrection as well. And so the, he talks about the Holy Spirit, but then he talks about his death. And it's because the Holy Spirit is for us and came to us because Jesus died. Now keep that. Again, that's the, that's the backdrop. The life that we're called to live has been made possible because of the death of Jesus. What we were able to be and do through the power of the Holy Spirit is only made possible because of what Jesus did. Now let's look at what Jesus did. Look at Matthew 26, 36 real quick. Matthew 26, 36. And this is a great uh, passage to read. If you want to write these down and read them all later, it would be really good. We know that they had the Last Supper. Jesus washed their feet. Some farewells of sorts. And then look what it says. It says, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, You guys go sit over here while I go over there and pray. So they purposefully, and and this is another thing, I'll just say this real quick. If you've ever been to Gethsemane, which is on the Mount of Olives, our guide showed us where they would have come from when they had the Last Supper. And so from the Mount of Olives, you can see, oh, they went from there. All the way to there. It's a long, how many miles did we think it was? He said it would have been like a 45-minute walk. This was a purposed walk. So they have the Last Supper. He washes their feet. He says, you do the same to others. And they take a walk to a specific place called Gethsemane. And he says, you sit here while I go over there. Let me just say this real quick. The place that they went to is called Gethsemane. Do you know what Gethsemane means? Some of you do. Some of you may not. Gethsemane means olive press. Jesus took himself to the olive press. He went to a place called the Mount of Olives, to a garden called Gethsemane, which means an olive press. That is where he took himself. That's not wasted, right? That that symbolism isn't wasted. He goes to the olive press. And if you know the story, if you've read, you know that he goes over, leaves his disciple, goes to a secluded place in the garden, and he begins to pray. And if you remember the prayer, he's, he's praying, he prays for his disciples. But one of the things he prays, Lord, this is about to get super intense. Is there any other way for you to accomplish your eternal purposes and plans to redeem mankind back to yourself? Is there any other way? I was watching that scene from The Passion of the Christ when you guys remember that, that um, kind of a unisex person. You don't know if it's a man or a woman, you know, in the, in the movie. But, um, but it portrays Satan and, and she's he, whatever, is whispering to Jesus in the garden, are you really who you say you are? Are you that whole scene? And 
It's a very intense scene, and Jesus holds his own, and you guys remember he crushes the snake. It's a very intense moment. But you will remember in that scene, he says, Lord, is there any other way for you to accomplish your purposes? And in the scene, he's asking, he's asking, is there any other way? And then you see the moon start being covered up by the clouds. And the imagery that they mean for us to to, uh, understand is that God was saying, no, there's no other way, son. And his next thing that he said was, not my will, but yours be done. And it was intense. And if you read other accounts in the Gospels, you know that what happened to Jesus physically in the garden. Does anybody know? He sweated blood. It says that his sweat was as blood. And I've read things that there is a physical possibility that someone can be in that much anguish. In fact, I think that's what it says, um, that he was in such anguish. Where is that? And being in agony, he was praying very fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. And get this, he takes himself to the olive press. And he was pressed beyond measure, knowing what was coming. He knew. He knew what was coming. He said, is there any other way? God's like, no. You have to go through this pressing. And it says that he was in such agony. He was pressed so much that he was like an olive. This is the first press, if you will, of Jesus. And it says that he sweated. His sweat was like blood. Can you guys see that imagery? Isn't that interesting? So the place that he went was Gethsemane to the olive press. And I want you to think about, he was in that garden at night in the dark, the one who was praying in the dark, submitting in the dark, agonizing in the dark, literally became the light that broke through the dark. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Amen. This was the first press. This was his first step, if you will, to him walking in that Isaiah 61 anointing. You guys familiar with that? The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Remember Jesus was, read this in the synagogue one day. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because, and he starts quoting Isaiah 61. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and to recover the sight for the blind and to set the oppressors free to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He was literally about to walk in that anointing, step in that anointing. He was going to be pressed, and that anointing oil was coming out, and it was about to do its work. You guys see that? You picturing all this? The first press. There's a lot going on in the first press. Just side note, I thought about this, and... I wrote it down just a little bit earlier today. Remember his prayer? Father, if there's any other way, and obviously there wasn't, he said, not my will, but yours be done. Can I just say something, and I don't even know how to verbalize it because it the thought just came to me today. But let me just say it like this. One of the things that we see, one of the greatest things that we see there is um, his submission, his obedience. Sometimes we talk about the oil or the anointing and we can get stirred up about the gifts of the Holy Spirit or, you know, you know what I mean, right? Something um, super charismatic things. And that's awesome and those things are only made possible through Christ. But let us not forget that the greatest thing that came out of Christ during that first press 
He's pressed. But the greatest thing that came out was his obedience. And it's his obedience that took him to the cross. Amen? He said, not my will, but yours be done. Okay. You guys are going to love it next week when Melissa shares, by the way. <laughs> obedience is the greatest fruit of all. So the second breath press. Let's talk about that. Remember we said that that second press um, was for, they would use that for food and they would use that for uh, medicine. I want you to think about the second press. If Jesus was pressed a second time, where would that second pressing take place? Where? Somebody, it's okay. Raise your hand and give me the answer. During his whipping and really that whole process of being, of being beaten, bruised, whipped, scourging, Right? So think about his second press was the stripes that he took on his back. What did it say? It says he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, by his stripes, we are healed. He is our healer. He is the bread of life. I forgot to mention that. You know, unless you eat of my body and drink of my blood, you will have no part in me. Whoa. <laughs> right? The second press has to do with food. And it has to do with healing. Unless you eat of my flesh, drink of my blood, you have no part of me. Interesting. There's body that was broken. Right? During that second press. That's the oil they would use for food. By his stripes we are healed. Wow, that's the oil they would use for medicine. He's our healer, Jehovah Rapha. I'm going to go ahead and move on to the third press. The third press. What would the third press be? And this one's a little harder to wrap your brain around. But not really. The third press. Where would the third press have been? Really, it was in that that last final moment. And there's so many, so many angles on this one. We'll see which one comes to my brain first. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's that moment where God looked away. In the work of the cross, just a few seconds later, maybe a few minutes later, Jesus said, it is finished. And when he said, it is finished. The atoning work of Christ took effect. What does the blood do for us? What does it do? It cleanses us. Let me, can I read a couple of scriptures? Hebrews 9. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. No forgiveness of sin. No removal of sin. 1 John 1. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all unrighteousness, from all sin. John 19. But the but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water flowed. Blood and water poured out, gushed out. Revelations 1 says, To him who loved us, Christ, and has washed us from our sins in his own blood. What did we say earlier for the, for the people of Israel? Well, not just Israel, you know, anybody who would use a press, I suppose. What, is it, what was that third pressing oil used for? Soap. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. That third pressing. What if God, what if God was like, whoa, this is too much. Jesus, get off the cross. Don't do this. Oh, 
thank goodness, I'm glad you changed your mind. What would be, what have happened to us? There would be no cleanse, cleansing. All the blood that he had shed in the, in the courtyard and along the way as he carried the cross, all that would have been wasted if in that moment God hadn't said, yes, let this work be completed. And Scripture says that he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God, that we might be totally cleansed. He who knew no sin. Scripture says that God's eyes are too pure to look upon sin. That's why he's like, okay, this is, this is when it all gets done. The sin, the weight of the sin of the whole world, past, present, and future, is on my son right now. I can't look at, son, at my son right now while he's... And so he looks away. This is kind of the imagery I've always gotten. gotten. Looks away. And in that moment... The atoning work of Christ took place. The third pressing. And without that third pressing, you guys, we would be in a lot of trouble. Amen? You know, tonight we're going to um, take communion. In fact, Becca, if you want to come on up, we're going to take communion. And communion is always a time where you can reflect, not just go through this religious ceremony, not just go through the motions of taking a little wafer and a little cup of juice and just go through the ceremony and, and try as fast as we can to get the chili so we can get that taste out of our mouth. You know what I'm talking about? That's not the point. Jesus said, I want you to do this. this was before he went to the olive press, he took communion with his best friends, his disciples. And he said, I want you, this is, the, this is my body that was broken for you. What are you talking about, Willis? This is my body, broken for you. Eat. This is my blood, poured out for many. Drink. Remember again, another place he said, unless you eat of my blood, uh, eat of my body, drink of my blood, you have no part in me. People thought he was crazy. Most of his disciples left at that point. He had a huge following, but they said, this teaching is too hard. You want us to eat you. They're like, we're done. He's crazy. I knew it. I figured it. But now you've proved it. Most of, his, most of his followers left. And Jesus was so serious. In fact, and I was telling my wife this. And again, I mean, back to the, back to the sermon of sin. It's the life that we have been called to live is made possible because he went through the first press. He went through the second press. And he endured the third press. And let me tell you, that third press may be the least valuable oil to the Israelites, but to me, it's the most valuable. Amen? Because without that, without him giving up his spirit, without that whole transaction between the Son and the Father, and that, that work being brought through all the way to completion, we would be in a much different place. Isn't that true? So maybe it was only worthy to make soap for them. But for me, it, it, it made me clean. Amen? And so when we take communion... This is a great way to remember that. This is a big deal. It's a very big deal. What Christ has done for us. He was pressed. He was pressed. Lord, I thank you. I thank you that you took yourself and the disciples up to that garden. I thank you that you allowed yourself to be pressed. Lord, I thank you that You didn't run from those guards who were looking for you like your disciples did. I thank you that you went to that 
trial, like a lamb led to the slaughter, you said nothing, completely humble, completely submitted to the Father, you were thinking of us, the joy set before you, you endured the pain, you endured the cross, you were pressed, you shed your blood, and we thank you that you went all the way to the end and you finished your work. And now we stand here able to rejoice and celebrate and worship, cleansed, righteous, holy, set apart, different. The old is gone, the new has come because of the work of the cross. And we say thank you. Amen.